Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The unstoppable ones. You did say unstoppable, right? You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on the Mission Unstoppable. Can anyone stop these people? Good evening and welcome to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I am your host, the unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and tonight we're going on another Mission Unstoppable. What would you do? How far would you go for your ideals? Would you go across an ocean and search for the truth? Would you cross a desert, give up your home, your worldly goods, food, even your name to find the answers to life's questions? Tonight you're going to meet a man who did just that. So stay tuned and stay close, and we'll be back in just a moment. Again, it's the unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and you're listening to us on Tuesday, May the 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Then you have turned in, tuned in to the live version of the show, and feel free to participate by calling in at 646 595 3741, press 1 to get into the host queue. Also, please join us in the chat room, which is now open. And if you are listening to the archive version, thank you for downloading it. And feel free to contact me if you'd, be, if you'd like more information uh, about my guests or the show for, at frankie at missionunstoppable.com. I'd like to take a moment here to thank the good folks at Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over their network. And I'd especially like to thank you, you know who you are, for tuning in each and every week. I'd also like to mention that we will have a panel discussion later on the show, and I'll be introducing you to some distinguished guests, Gary Gock, Sister Jenna, Solomon Conti de Montebianco, and I will tell you more about these folks when I introduce you to them shortly. My featured guest this evening, though, is Frank Romano, author of Storm Over Morocco, professor of law, literature, history, philosophy at the University of Paris, and member of the Bar in both France and in the United States. In addition to writing Storm Over Morocco, Frank has also written Globalization of Antitrust Policies in French and a book of poems entitled Crossing Over. For many years, Frank sought the answer to some of life's big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? He also thought a lot about world peace and wondered if there existed in the world one religion that everyone could ascribe to, one route to God that would unify the world and bring about peace. Tonight we're going to talk to Frank about his incredible odyssey, his escape from an extremist Islamic monastery, and his passion that is still alive today, searching for peace in the Middle East. Frank is involved in organizing interfaith events, bringing Christians, Jews, and Muslims together in Palestine and Israel. And then with the help of a few friends that I mentioned earlier, and hopefully you too, we're going to open some dialogue and seek solutions for what troubles the world today. Look for ways to initiate peace in the Middle East and discuss the involvement of religion in world conflict and how it can sometimes prevent and or help lead us to world peace. But first, let's welcome Frank Romano. Good evening, Frank. Good <laughs> evening, Frankie. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And hello, everybody in the chat room. Welcome to, to the show, Mission Unstoppable. First of all, I just wanted to say, Frank, that Storm Over Morocco, Finding God in the Midst of Fanatics, is an absolutely fascinating inve- adventure. It's an incredible autobiography. It's super really well-written. Super, that's a new word I just made up. And, and it just happens to be the story you know, of about a big part of your life. And so I'd just really like to uh, congratulate you on such a well-written novel. I think it's in the fourth or fifth edition, maybe. And and right. also like to take some time to speak about that journey, like where you started, where you went, what was different when you returned. So maybe we can we can talk about all of that, and then we'll get to our panel a little bit later, maybe half past the hour. How's that? Okay. Um, let me just get started on what uh, well, took me out know, of but, Paris. Well, you first of all, you started. You're American. Yeah. Right? You started in Oregon, and and I think you were raised in Oregon in San Francisco. That's right. Raised in Oregon and Northern California, and uh, spent time in San Francisco in law school, and and had my law firm there. And I had this, um, I had my law firm set up, but I hadn't uh, any international clients. So what brought me to Paris was that I was accepted for a fellowship program. So I pretty well, you know, uh, sold my law firm uh, in view of coming back after a year on a and went to on a fellowship program graduate fellowship to the University of Paris, brought my family with me, and after a year, 
instead of coming back, uh, you know, I had my three kids with me and my wife, and we thought it was um, we, the kids were re- receiving a first-rate education. So she decided to stay. And uh, this this um, turned into um, me living in Paris and getting a professor's position, getting my PhD, and so forth. But this whole experience uh, is is kind of uh, not in chronological order, Frankie, because um, this whole experience in Morocco took place before that, and that's when I was first seeking. Uh, and this is when I was really going through a lot of head trips, and I was seeking identity and all this. When I was studying philosophy at the Sorbonne in Paris some uh, 20 years before I got back as, on the fellowship program, I returned this time with kids and a wife. But I was there by, by myself searching and wondering you know, why I believed in certain things if I had been spoon-fed things all my life, Frankie, you know, as we all have, and, and yeah. started to re- realize that I hadn't done any thinking for myself. And so here I am now in Paris. I'm getting disillusioned with Paris because it's a big city. And basically, I was raised in Northern California in a place called Santa Rosa, born in Oregon, and pretty much from the country, worked on farms a lot of, a lot of years of my life, and uh, went into the city, actually, to want to do international law. That duck put me into the city. But see, now I'm in, in Paris. Uh, before I, I went to law school and stuff, trying to find myself, trying to find my, my, my meaning for living. About... Um, about 25, 26 now, and um, in Paris. You, let me. I'm gonna stop you for a second because I, I'm yes, just gonna please. work your book a little bit. You, yes. Because talking very quickly, <laughs> we need to slow down a little. You, sure. You. Your your father had influenced you a lot yes. because he he had yeah. been in the army, he'd been in the war, and he joined the Baha'i movement when he came right. back. He that spirituality and political interdependence would lead to peace and progress. Right. And and so that was kind of an influence really say, yeah, you know what, maybe peace can exist yeah. in this. In the yeah, he planted seeds, uh, the first seeds, I would say, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, to um, uh, show me, uh, to at least explain to me that war was not the answer, and he saw so much killing in World War II when he came back. Um, he became a, a staunch supporter of the UN, and you know, Frankie, in those days, this was like after World War II, the UN was really searching and organizing, and it did recommend the Baha'i movement simply because the Baha'is believe in the harmony of religion. And so when I went to Paris, um, I had this in the back of my mind, and uh, when I left Paris now, I was searching really for my own. I, I became a nihilist, uh, almost an anarchist, a nihilist, believing in nothing after my city life experience there and all the city games and and all my uh, principles were coming to the fro and being or uh, you know and I was interrogating before myself. You to, before you went to Paris, you were you, yeah. you were searching even before then, and so you went into the ghetto and you stayed. And, and, and you wanted to know what it was like to be with African Americans, and you wanted to know what it was like to be with other groups of people, right? I mean, you were you were searching. I was searching because I I, I just couldn't understand how people could be thrown into ghettos because the, my my Italian American background also uh, led me to understand that the Italians started out in ghettos too, and uh, right. now I'm on the West Coast. The Italians have somehow evolved and still there's discrimination and racism and so forth that we felt but not thrown into ghettos however african americans are still in the ghettos uh, and they were still then and and perhaps i don't know how things things are have evolved slowly but i i wanted to experience that and understand what it what's like and i i, I met people and um i i felt uh, direct uh, first-hand knowledge i felt the pressure because i was living with african americans and because I was living with them, I was stigmatized as being one of them and feeling the, 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 the discrimination that my family had felt when they immigrated to the U.S. And so I, I, I was feeling uh, that I wanted to work for victims. But uh, the first thing, however, was to find out who I was. And so when I went to Paris, it was, it was on a, uh, an identity, identity crisis where I was studying philosophy and, and questioning things that I'd never questioned before. I simply just abandoned Paris and took off, and I had one thing in mind. I didn't want to do anything other than travel, maybe find what my spirituality was, and maybe end up in the Holy Land and work on the interfaith movement. I heard that different religions are working together for peace and that religion was part of the conflict. And so I simply took off. 
and I, end, I ended up in Casablanca, Morocco, and if you know, the itinerary, coming going down from Paris, I took a train, crossed the Mediterranean in a ferry, ended up in, in Morocco, uh, on my way across northern Africa into the, nor- into the Holy Land was my ultimate goal, um, and I, st- I ended up in Casablanca, where I'd met this group. And the Muslim group, you know, had me inside their mosque and invited me to learn oh, about Islam. You're going way too fast, way too fast. Well, that's what oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> you, you, met, you met some Moroccans when you worked in, 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 in a health food restaurant. Or that's in right, in, in Paris. In, and they're the other ones Paris. who told me that and, they, they, they suggested they I take the itinerary instead of going direct to the Holy Land and I go through Morocco. And they, they uh, the, the first people who inspired me. Uh, to um, to learn about the Moroccan culture and learn about Islam when I was in Morocco before I got to the Holy Land. Now, is this because it's part of the the Quran? Is part of the Islamic dictate to to try to to influence people or introduce people to Islam and Muslim? And and is this why they were telling you to go to Morocco? Do you think? No, actually, actually, this goes back. To your introduction of me today, Frankie, that I, I really thought that I was looking, I was looking for a universal religion, and okay. I thought Islam might be the one, uh, even though you know the Baha'is used to be Muslims, and and I, and I felt that uh, the Islam was the original religion before the Sufis and the Baha'is, and that maybe that was the answer to peace. Uh, and so here I am now in Casablanca studying Islam in this group. In this, it turned out to be a cult. And then after a, a, a week of studying Islam with uh, with me, I, I leave. I, I go out to I go out to the front door in front of the mosque, and I and I say goodbye to the imam. I told the imam I'm going to continue my path. Thank you very much. I'm going to continue my voyage to the Holy Land. And but that the, the door was locked now, and there's a guard in front, and they're not letting me out. And then the whole second stage of this experience, this turned out to be a harrowing experience, began at that point. But you were fortunate that you had met some um, a family. You'd met a family that was um, really a savior for you. Um, I don't know if the names are true, but in your book, it's it's Azadeen and and yeah, Azadeen. And uh, most of the names I've uh, some of the names I've changed to protect those people. But uh, I did meet a family. I uh, I was so obstinate though. They They were Berbers. What's the difference between the Berbers and, and the rest of the Moroccans? Yes, frankly, the Berbers are to northern Africa as the Indians are to North America. They were there long before the Arabs came and invaded and imposed Islam on the Berbers. The Berbers were converted to Islam, but the Berbers I had met were far less... uh, so we say practitioners. They 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 believed in Islam, but far less. They they, they had they weren't really extremist, uh, and they were far more liberal with respect to Islam than the Arabs I had met. That's not always the the way to distinguish the two. But the Berbers warned me not to go into this mosque, and I wouldn't listen to them. I went into this mosque, and now I'm a prisoner inside. Apparently, they they sent people to try to visit me. They wouldn't let anyone visit me. The brainwashing began inside this mosque uh, by them isolating me, wanting to convert me to an extremist form of Islam so I could help recruit for this group. That was their overall goal. You were, you were, you seemed right for it. You seemed like, you know, you really wanted to, um, to memorize the prayers and, and, to, and to learn the Arabic and to, um, at first you thought these were like brothers and you thought there might be enlightenment and you, and you fasted a lot and you lost a lot of weight and you yes. got really sick. Yeah, actually, this is it. Turns out was part of their uh, their approach too. As um, we went through Ramadan, and I don't know if you've heard of Ramadan, is a yeah. fasting, a month of fasting, and they uh, encouraged me to even do more Ramadan and to continue fasting. So I'd lost a lot of weight. The water was disagreeing with me, and uh, they were encouraging me to lose more weight. And I think this was part of their brainwashing approach to make me weaker. So that I would be much more susceptible to their uh, to their um, indoctrination, and uh, but I the, the three four weeks went by and I simply wouldn't convert. They accused me of being a spy. They changed their strategy, Frankie. They realized I wasn't converting, and so as part of the conversion process, part of the pressure on me is they accused me of being a spy from Israel there to interfere with their back to Islam movement. Mind you, this is in 1978. 
Uh, this was like 30 years ago. I didn't know that these groups were, I never found these groups on my radar before I went down there. And now I'm, I'm mixed up with them. And they're putting me on trial inside the mosque um, as a, there to interfere with the back to Islam movement and as uh, and charging me with being a Zionist spy. I didn't even know what they meant by all that. Uh, they acquitted me. But they still wouldn't let me go, and at that point, when they brought me back into the mosque, they were holding me in isolation outside of the mosque in a facility. Uh, and, and again, let me set this up. Let me set the stage here. We're be, I'm, I'm inside a mosque, and there's a madrasa, which is Islamic school, and we're inside a 10-foot wall compound in the outskirts of Casablanca, and I'm not going anywhere. They're bringing me back into the mosque after they acquitted me of these serious charges, but they still wouldn't release me. And so at, at that point, I realized uh, I was getting weaker and weaker with the fasting and so forth that I must start playing the game. I must stop uh, asking questions. And a very important part of the catalyst that really brought them to make, brought these charges against me, Frankie, was I questioned their treatment of women in their community. That, that's, that's what, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, and that's what made them accuse me of these serious crimes. That, that was the end that I actually would, would dare, uh, in, in their own backyard, uh, criticize them for, for their treatment of women. In other words, they would tell me women had three roles they, uh, in society. They, would, they'd be, they were a veil, they'd go outside, buy groceries, come back, make dinner, and make babies. There was no other thing that they were authorized to do. Hang on. Since we're on internet radio, you can tell the story. Um when you when you asked your mentor um about why 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 were women, you know, supposedly inferior to men. Do you want yeah. to tell the story that, that you told in the book? Yeah, it's just a uh and and he's and he he sort of smugly related this story and thought that at the end of the story I'd have no more questions and he said well there were the two there was a couple in the hotel and the man wanted to go to the, need to go to the bathroom and they had absolutely no bathroom inside they had a window elevated and so the man gets on top of the shoulders of his wife and pees out the window now she has to go to the bathroom. his wife has to go to the bathroom uh and she stands on his shoulders and she and to, tries to pee out the window, and she pees on his head. And so he looked to me as if now I need ask no more questions, that uh, a woman's a woman, a man's a man, and that should indicate to me a probably inferiority of women and, uh, and, and why they should be kept that way uh, in society. And yet that pretty well provoked uh, a, almost a violent reaction on my part and a, and a, and a criticism of this assistant imam who was relating the story, and from that point on, he became my enemy, and he was the one who accused me of these crimes, of these crimes now, of being a, you, uh, there to escaped, interfere with the Baptism movement. You escaped from from the the monastery, and actually, you went to another monastery too, didn't you? You they, you were in the North Mosque, and then mm-hmm. they took you um, out of town, and you went you went traveling to try to, I guess. Um, Meet meet villagers and and because the the attendance was low in the mosque and so these monks right. you went on a little trip and That's you went right. to another mosque and so you were no longer you were like now you're in the real interior and and there's like where are you going to go there's nothing but desert like you can't, and uh, you know, exactly they, they they were using me they were they were telling the people and they were trying to bring people back to Islam but there was it turned out to be an extremist form of Islam they wanted the people in the village to attend the mosque, and they were saying, look, they were telling the people, if you don't return to Islam, Islam will uh, be uh, taken over by foreigners like this. And this man has become a Muslim. He's become a practitioner. So they sort of used me to bring the people back through Islam, uh, except uh, when I got out to the village there and I was staying in the mosque with them, uh, I, I did things such as when I left the mosque, um, I looked at, I, I looked around, and I, they, they accused me of looking at their women. They, these are villagers, and at one time the whole village was up in arms and trying to lynch me because I had dared look at any of their women. I wasn't supposed to be doing that, as since simply a traveler with this group uh, and a stranger. And, so every, um, time you, every time your group came across women, you had to turn your back to them? I had to turn my back, and this was another one of my problems. I, I couldn't believe that they were ordering me to turn my back as if I were in elementary school. And, and, and the second problem I had with the imam was I, I couldn't understand 
how the imam would simply conclude that any time I saw a woman, I'd have lascivious thoughts, that it would somehow distract me from my spiritual goal. And this this all became a problem when the villagers came to the, uh, that evening when I'd been accused of looking at their women when I'd left the mosque a little bit and walked around the village. That they, they were inside the mosque. All the male members of the, of, of the village were inside the mosque there to lynch me, and, and then the imam was able to calm them down, and then they left after evening prayers. But then that's when the, the imam felt that I must be there to interfere with the Back to Islam movement, because now the villagers were not only against me, they were also against them. And they felt that I was there then as a spy to, to, to uh, provoke uh, conflict with their group, and yet their group was trying to bring back these villagers to Islam. And that's, that's how it all began. The trial yeah, began the imam, against me and everything. Yes. But the imam said to you that, you know, if you're, good, if you're a good Muslim, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to have, you know, just paradise and all these virgins and life is going to be wonderful. Mm-hmm. However, if you decide to turn your back on them, then you're just going to go to hell. <laughs> I mean, that's well, really well, what he's not only right? that, Frankie, is Truly, but it, it, and it sounds like almost any extremist group, it's not just... Yeah. Islamic extremists that say that, but he went a little bit further. He said, and if whatever you are to do, and this is when I began to play the game, back in the main mosque, and we returned from the trip, I began to play the game because I knew they wouldn't release, they weren't going to release me, um, that uh, they always, they threatened me, the imam threatened me, he said, if you're ever to abandon Islam, uh, and he, they called me Muhammad Abdulaziz, uh, then uh, this could be the most serious crime. As a Gentile, having converted to Islam, uh, abandoning Islam now could allow us to execute you. And that's and, and and but I realized once I started playing the game, I've got to find a way out. Uh, but the joke was almost on me, Frankie, because I was becoming a model Muslim at the same time they really were breaking me down, and I thought it was urgent that I escape because I could become one of them. What did you love about become one of them? The, what did you love about Islam? Well, I, I like the 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 tenets of Islam are very similar. The tenets of Judaism and Christianity, and I liked it because there's a, there's this breathing of brotherly uh, unity, and uh, just like you know the essentials of other religions that they they tell you to love your brother, and they seemed and this group seemed to be living it, not just speaking it they were living it they were traveling around uh, the leaders of the the mosque were actually professionals some of them were accountants dedicating their uh, their holidays to bringing people back to Islam I thought they were really living their religion except little did I know that this happened to be a Wahhabist group not even a Moroccan group an expert told me that had been implanted in Morocco to, to convert the people to an extremist form of Islam so this 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 group was way over the bar but so Islam in general like the Koran and so forth is a very peaceful, loving religion. And it's these extremist groups that have interpreted it in a different way. They've talked about jihad, and, and this group was no exception. They talked about converting people by force in jihad, uh, uh, holy war, at least the holy war interpretation so of the word jihad. When you first came across these these people, you thought, "Oh, look at this! They're they're so loving and so beautiful, and and it's just such a wonderful. You give away all your worldly goods, and and if life was just like this, how wonderful would things be? You know, nobody needs things. If everybody just looked after everybody, life would be great. But then you see that yeah. that they're not walking their talk, right? And and yeah. you know, to me, it's it's kind of like those quote unquote Christian groups who say, "Just be a Christian, love everybody," and yet they're the first ones to go you know, have discrimination against other people. So Truly. I think whenever you get into an extremist, you know, position, um, r- very right, you know, wing, then, then you come across these people with very little tolerance for others. And truly, Frankie, and it says in the Quran, just like in the New and the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill. And they, they said, well, we will love our brothers, but if you don't follow our tenets, you can be executed. And this was contradictory it seemed like that you could uh, first of all don't believe in killing but that they can find a way to interpret the Quran to be able to kill non-believers and yeah. so that that put up the red flag but in spite of that they, they were getting to me and when I was able to finally found a way out to escape uh, it was close I really I, I was still I still felt bad even after I had escaped and was staying in, and the Berbers were hiding me inside Casablanca I had this incredible urge to go back which is crazy because they probably would have executed you had, you had, me if I had. You did have um, um, a, a very 
I'll call it a religious experience because you you had this this experience in the desert, I think, where um, you felt great love. You felt this, I don't know, testimony or, or this love to forgive, yeah. and, and, and you knew that what you were searching for existed, but it wasn't existing there. Is, do you want to talk about that a little bit, that experience? Yeah, that was, that was the key. You know, it's interesting that it sounds like you've really read the book, Frankie. I read your book. not always the case when I'm interviewed. Uh, and I have, I've had more than one interview here. And uh, that was the key chapter to the whole book. And I don't usually identify it. I allow people to kind of find that for themselves. But there's a period in there. And it's the time when I'm in the village and I'm surrounded by enemies where they really have come to lynch me because I had, I dared look at one of their women and that my that, that all the people inside the mosque were against me thinking that I had provoked this lynching and provoked the hate of the villagers against not only myself but them. I'm, I'm surrounded by enemies and not knowing what's going to happen now that this incredible moment of, of intense prayer and meditation happened that gave me incredible strength. And here I'd lost over 30 pounds within three or four weeks. I was very weak physically, but very strong spiritually. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this arid plains in the Atlas Mountains, I'm getting this surge of energy that allowed me to it actually help turn the tide and, and, and gave me strength and, and allowed me to speak with strength to them. And, uh, and 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 at the end of this and, and toward this is toward the middle of the story, I was able to almost take over the group. Literally, they were told me, "Well, look, um, I, I told them I'm leaving. I'm leaving," and they couldn't believe that I had the strength to stand up and do that. And now all of a sudden, they're telling me, "Well, then you tell us what you want us to do," because they were afraid if I had left by myself that I'd be killed by the villagers. And so they said, okay, you are a leader now, at least temporarily. Until they got back to Casablanca, I was in charge. And, this, and a lot of the strength that I had to, to be able to take the initiative and not to accept what had been happening to me came through this incredible surge of energy through meditation and prayer in the middle of these arid plains surrounded by enemies. It was an incredible event that happened. And that told me there's something out there. There's something inside of us and something out there other than day-to-day Living, there, there's a cosmic force. There's no, I just, I just felt there's just no way I could have, be, I could be doing this by myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I got help there. And then, then that was an answer to one of my fundamental questions: Is there something, or is there nothing? That was my main. That was my question: Is it, is there, is there something inside of us that, is there something in, that connects us to the universe, this universal love force, or has it just been contrived by humans as a comfort zone thing to try to uh, explain uh, things we don't understand to overcome our fear, but in reality does not exist. But during that moment, I felt there is something, and I felt it. I mean, it's, it, there was a physical manifestation of something. It wasn't just all about faith and something. Totally in the spiritual zone, I was actually being 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 enhanced physically by by this force, and that's when I realized that the answer to one of my questions is: Is there a force out there inside of us linking us? And and the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. There's wow. something there. Yeah. So, give us the ending of that. You you managed to um, you managed to escape, but trust is is hard to come by now. You're kind of afraid that they're going to find you. You're afraid. That um, not only that the, the folks in the monster are going to find you and take you back or kill you, but mm-hmm. but now when you're meeting people, you kind of have a mistrust, um, especially those from, I would think, from Morocco. Well, it, it was the not now actually. I've moved beyond that, Frankie. I've uh, at first it was truly so, and I was hunkering down. This was 30 years ago, and the book yeah. is only coming out now because I had to overcome a lot of my paranoia and fear, and it took me years to do that. Uh, but the, the idea of the book coming out now to share the story is that I've, I've uh, managed to overcome the fear and the paranoia. And, the, I, I, and I basically, my, my trust, I never did give up on people and distrust people. Uh, I just had to overcome psychological issues with, with fear and paranoia. But I've always uh, trusted people in, in, until they have proven otherwise that I shouldn't trust them. Uh, but one of the reasons why I'm out there now, and I'm not using a pen name, people ask me, well, if you were so afraid if this really happened, why would you put your real name to the book and be out there with all these author events? And I've had about 70 or 75 of them in the last two or three years. Is because I'm convinced that these groups are not targeting individual authors anymore. They used to target them like Salman Rushdie and other authors. 
and there are too many of them now. And I feel, and, and even though they're not withdrawing the fatwas and didn't withdraw the fatwa against him, they are not seem to be applying them against individual authors. And in any case, my book is not anti-Islam. And um, I, I've learned a lot from that religion, and I try to share what I've learned with other people, but I figured if I'm going to be out there doing author events, Frankie, what's the point of using a pen name? I'm going to be out there anyway. I want to share the story, and I want to learn, and then move forward to what I'm doing now, and that is I'm organizing interfaith events in the Middle East. And this experience has given me a great deal of strength to understand what is behind indoctrination extremists because I do meet them on a daily basis from all different walks of life from all different religions and I find that is a big part of the conflict in the Middle East not the only part and my experience in Morocco helps me to deal with these people and help me to organize dialogues with them not just with extremists with people of all levels of religious understanding and backgrounds well, we're gonna. Um, I, I, we have some guests on. On we have some callers, so I'm gonna pick mm-hmm. up the phone. I'm not sure who's who because I, I don't know who's area code. So I'm gonna pick up okay. area code four one five. Hello, area code four one five. Who do I have? Hi, Frankie. Line? Is it Hi. Gary? This is no Bodie. This is Gary Gock. Hello, Hi, Gary. Gary. What a privilege <laughs> and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let me just say that Gary is a Jewish Buddhist American author <laughs> of the Complete <laughs> Idiot's Guide to Buddhism and editor of what book, Buddha Poems from Beat to Hip Hop. And his work has been widely published uh, in places like the Harvard Divinity Bulletin. And he also, which I think is really great, um, you you are offer mindful mindfulness meditation at the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, America's first interracial interfaith congregation, and whose interfaith peace forum you are a participant, and you're also a member of Veterans of War, Veterans of Peace. So welcome, Gary. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm going to just um, see who the other person online is, and we'll see if that is maybe Sister Jenna. Hello, area code 646. Good evening. Uh, hi, this is Mike Stroger. I'm actually Frank's publisher. Hi, oh, Mike. Hi. hi, how's it going, Frank? Good, thanks for calling. Yeah, yeah, my okay. pleasure. So I don't really have a question. I'm just sort of listening. Oh, okay, I'll just keep you back on hold there. How's that? You can keep listening. Great. Is that good? Yeah. All right. Great, Mike. Thank you. So, Gary, welcome. Um you know, you've been hearing. I know that you said in, in the chat room that you've been riveted to Frank's story. Yeah. What, what did it? How did it make you feel? Well, you know, I mean, just to catch up, I think this this turning point in the desert. It's just the most inspiring part of the story, um, and the courage that I that he that you are now um, coming from. I think is probably coming from that that place that you um, speak of. Um, um, you know, I I don't think um, personally uh, that religions are doctrines to fight or kill or die for. Um, unfortunately, doctrines, theories, or ideologies uh, uh, sometimes get used that way. Um, someone like I was also, by the way, looking at Frank's website and the um, the pictures and the uh, his blog posts about the interfaith dialogue in the Middle East. Are mm-hmm. so inspiring because it's really listening as well as speaking. You can't speak without listening. You can't listen without speaking. And uh, you know, doing the um, um, the practice, the spiritual practice of listening and uh, you know engaging in a dialogue. Um, I think it's one of the only ways uh, to peace. Well, Frank is actually going back in a, in a few days to the Middle East. He says he's going to London shortly, and then you're going to be doing a peace march. Um, tell us about that, Frank. Well, um, the peace march will be um, in London, uh, organized uh, by a lady called her name. The first name is Bridget. And then a week after that, um, I'm going to be going into uh, Janine, which is the West Bank, uh, because a month ago, um, Gary, I don't know if you saw some of the things in the in the in the blog and and Mike you're there too and uh about going into the West Bank um uh, and we tried to go in Janine about a month ago and it's a very uh, com- uh contested area unfortunately the refugee camps and so forth and uh we weren't able to go through with our 
Peace Freedom March, and so I'm I committed to going back, uh, and, and we'll be doing that the fifth of June, um, and we're going to going into Janine and just simply organizing, bringing as many people in from all over the world. Unfortunately, Israelis can't get are not legally to, supposed to go to the West Bank, and if they're caught in the West Bank, they can be apprehended or pay a high fine and or pay a high fine. So most of the Jews that come with me come from Canada and the U.S. and Christians and Baha'is and Sufis, um, Buddhists and Hindus are all very welcome. And I uh, haven't had any uh, yet, but we've just started, really, in the last uh, year. But there's a lot of activity there. I, I wouldn't say I'm the only one, but what I simply try to do is work together. And this is how a dialogue will go. And I'll be very short about this, and you can you know, share with me what you think is uh, we'll start out with a Jew, Muslim, and a Christian together, and they're convinced that they don't share the same God. And then I don't judge them. I simply facilitate dialogue. I'm no expert of any kind. I just facilitate people coming together. And we'll say, well, let's, let's look at the Torah. Let's look at the Old and New Testament. Let's look at the Koran. And we focus on what's similar. We find that these texts, they all focus a lot on believing in one God, thou shalt not kill, they believe in brotherly love, taking care of the poor people. And at the end of our dialogue, I simply ask questions. I say, well, do you think it's possible that Jews, Muslims, and Christians could share the same God? And, when, and I, I receive indication that they're starting to think that that's possible. Then I leave them with the very last question. And this, is again, is in a refugee camp, a contested refugee camp in the West Bank. I said, well, does it make sense to kill on the name of God if you share the same God? And then I'll come back maybe two or three months later. We'll see how they've involved in their thinking. It's, it's talking about dialogue, thinking, and when you have a Jew and a Muslim and a Christian next to each other sharing and understanding, they see each other as individuals and not as uh, something that their religious leaders and politicians have told them that they are, like they're devil worshippers or hateful people, that they see them as individuals just like themselves. And so I feel, as have you have manifested that, Gary, that that is a key. Uh, uh, this dialogue, work, uh, speaking is, is a key. And then working together. Without working together, without doing the walk, the talk is good. Without doing the walk, I don't think we're, we'll, we'll achieve a durable peace, neither in the... Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's possible to set aside time for everyone present to uh, engage together in silent prayer together? Mm -hmm. And at the you end know, of the period of silent prayer, yes. to yes. ask them if they feel if the room is different, if they can feel for themselves mm -hmm. the quality in the room, and if they feel the presence that they have prayed to as being present now in the room. I think um, bringing this, the actual practice of spiritual dimension to uh, these kinds of um, dialogues uh, can possibly facilitate a grounding where you feel it's the same God. You know that Elohim or you know, Adonai and Allah are one. You know, yeah. which both, both religions are saying is they're monotheistic religions, but to yeah. actually um, invite the practice together, mm -hmm. I think I like the people idea can that. feel that. I don't, I, it's, yeah, I'm curious. You know, what you, what, you, what you were focusing on has actually been very successful to cementing people together at the end if it happens to get to that level, we've had now. Now, Muslims, especially Orthodox or Islamists, don't, don't like to really pray with Jews or Christians, but we can meditate together. Yeah. And that what you're talking about is clearly what we've tr tried simply to get started. Right. We'll meditate, and everyone will pray in their own way. There won't be any anything imposed. And then you you we break up in groups sometimes, and we talk about what we felt. Right. That has been most successful, Gary, in Israel where I used to do all, almost all my dialogue work with incredible people in the, in the kibbutzes in the Galilee and in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem peacemakers and Naomi in the Galilee, except the Palestinians couldn't get through. And that's why I'm going to the West Bank now, because the Palestinians are difficult to get through the checkpoints and the walls. And we're, we're not as evolved, though, yet. Haven't even got to that stage that you're talking about, what I think is fundamental to bringing, bringing can, can it together. Can I say something? I, yes, because please. there's a couple of things that are going on, you know, in Israel and Palestine. First of all, you have uh, a Jewish state of Israel, and and it being 
Jewish not in the in the religious sense, but in 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 the um, the cultural sense. Correct. You know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So you you have a land of, of Jews, and then you have people who are coming from Canada, U.S., whatever, who are Jewish, and and it's a very different mm. very different feeling. I'm sure. Yeah. Then you have you have people who you know the Zionist movement. So you have people who who have a home, and people who don't have a home, and people who may not have a home, and going well. If you take my home, then I don't have a home either. And so you have a whole you know it, it goes beyond religion because it it goes to, to land boundaries and and and. You know, bringing the Muslims in, like when you were the extremist sect, um, uh, Frank. You know, they said, "Well, you know, Allah is the only God. You know, you can't call him God because God is Allah. Allah is God, and 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 so don't call him God." <laughs> you know? right. So, yeah. so he's the only one, and he's the real God, and mine's the real one, and yours isn't like a real one. So you can pray to whoever you want, but we're going to pray to the real one. How how do you get by the? I mean, I can't go to Israel. You can't go to Palestine. So how do how do we get together? You know, it, yeah. and and the and the thinking has been so archaic, even for like two thousand years. And when you were in, I mean, you, you saw how they lived in Morocco. You saw how people lived. You, yeah. you know, you defecate into a hole in the ground. You, uh, how, without world experience, how do you how do you, you know, go forward two thousand years? Well, you know, with with in the West Bank, it's not able to evolve uh, a lot because of how it's organized and the, the what we call the occupation. But many Israelis, um, and I'm saying those that are, that are you know, national, they're they're members right. of the state of Israel. They are nationals of the state of Israel are working toward opening it up. It's the West Bank. Just to, uh, to focus on one issue that you're, I think you're. Um, uh, bringing up is um, about evolving. The evolution of the area has kind of been slow because uh, there's not free circulation of people and ideas in this area. So I bring people in and, um, and, and bring people in from the outside. I think there's more and more people coming from the outside to overcome the filtering of news. It gives us the idea that the West Bank in particular is a very dangerous place, and many of my Jewish friends believe it's very dangerous even to go to Israel, which I feel is simply not the case. It, and it's not dangerous to go into West Bank. Um, it's, it's just unstable. They're welcoming uh, people from all walks of life, including the former uh, extremists that were really much working with the uh, suicide bombing and stuff. I've, I've really turned the page as far as with, with respect to the peace process. So bring that together. Bringing that together, one God. Let's go back to that theme, though. We need to organize our thinking into that one thing of one God. When I walk the streets of the West Bank, and I, I try it as a testing, well, I, either they're going to take me hostage, they're going to be upset with me, and then all bets are off. I'm going to say, Allah o Akbar. I'm going to say also, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad, La ilaha illan la. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. I'm saying it in Hebrew, in Arabic. And in English, because I was raised a Christian in the States, I only know the English version of the Trinity, and they have accepted it. And they accept me saying, Adonai Eloheinu, which is in Hebrew for God, a Lord, Lord our God. And uh, they accept it. And this is one step, I think, in the direction of saying, well, it's not just verbalizing the word Allah. They accept the, 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 um, the Jewish um, pronunciation of God, because they've gone beyond it now. They're saying this is, well, it's all about one God, and if you believe in one God, we'll accept that. And so I think that is it's a slow progress thing. It's very complicated in the area, it's true, with the culture and the land and so forth. But I see these major themes that we're discussing as a beginning point, and moving into meditation together, as Gary, you have been focusing on, that exactly what I was doing in Storm Over Morocco, in the beginning, in the middle of the desert, it was through meditation, where I brought together almost like a tag team between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity that, that helped me overcome my own prejudice and move forward to the main themes among these religions, such as one God, loving your brother, Taking care of the poor, which are which have become have evolved into sort of what my faith is now. Let me let me stop here for a second, Gary. Yes, please. What do you what do you think about the idea um, of of not having religion at all? Like, do you think that that religion is stopping people from coming well, together? So much, Frankie, there's a lot invested in it. <laughs> you know. Um, well, it you know, keeps people are, in it, line. It, what do you, do you mean? Lifting religion up out of religion into the spirituality 
making it a world consciousness movement rather than a a religious movement. Well, you know, that's the open secret of the past 20 years, that people have been for themselves making access to divine, the presence, the sacred in in our lives, uh, apart, you know, in addition to and beyond uh, a pew or a school or a temple, because if God is only in the temple, where is she? The other right. six days of the week, you know, and the, that is right. becoming very much of a movement. I just kind of initially said that there's so much invested because, you know, in, in, in the most positive sense, there really isn't a free form floating spirituality that we can access that isn't bound to culture and religions preserve, you know, the teachings. And um, as a Buddhist, where do you go when you die? Listen, I can't remember breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but truly, in, in, no, 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 no. It's, Buddhism, listen, in Buddhism, is there heaven and hell? Is there, is there Frankie, just, Frankie, the, the, the main tenant in Buddhism is addressing uh, unnecessary suffering in one's own life and in the life of others. Okay. And if the, if the question of reincarnation or first cause or any of those things really changes that, I don't know. It's really more about how does one approach needless suffering. Pain is inevitable, but suffering can be extra. And how do we extricate ourselves from, you know, um, all this, you know, unnecessary suffering? And I don't know whether the questions you're asking, if they're even answerable, can address that. Well, you know what I think. Buddhism, you know, it's it's, it's, it's atheistic. Well, it's true, but I think that the purpose of life is to help other people. And oh, yeah. if the purpose is, and when we're helping other people, we help ourselves. And so we come outside yeah. of our own event, our own our own pain. Um, well, I and, noticed and that you, you yeah. I very value and cherish that you you emphasize kindness in you know your presence in your in your work. Um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who's currently on tour, has been has said that if he were to boil his religion down to one word, it's kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if we take if we take doctrine or dogma away, Frank, yeah, and yeah. just say kind to other people, be you know, look at the beggar on the street and, and ask, you know, therefore the grace of God go I. What, how, what can I do to help my brother or my sister? What can I do to to bring somebody else up, and then bring me up at the same time? So how can a Jew or, or Muslim or a Christian or Palestinian help somebody else? Um, of another culture, faith, religion, whatever, you know, how can they reach out beyond themselves and then find themselves elevated? Well, I think that warmth of kindness that we feel, that desire for kindness, comes from a comes from even a, a, a broader center of love to to feel kindness, to feel love for someone who's not even of your own race or religion, I think is what it's all about. And, and, and I think it's all linked. And, and when we walk down the street and we feel, and, and I, I, Gary, I, I, I focus on that as well, and Frankie, uh, the idea of um, if, if I feel compassion for that person, it's because I'm feeling love and I'm feeling sorrow. Whereas it's a constant struggle in the big city in which I live to not feel indifference uh, over for, for struggling because you're you you get so focused in your own survival, uh, and I think that's when that strength and that 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 doctrine of of of, of cosmic love that something linking us together, giving giving us this Buddhist mindfulness that I perhaps I don't understand that Gary and you could shed more light on it that feeling of mindfulness that feeling of of presence that feeling of of, of grace and love that'll help us be kind. I think I think that's a one way to approach it. Simply being kind is a manifestation of that universal love force. I think that without even talking about God and of course a way of overcoming suffering is feeling that kindness, feeling feeling that givingness, getting out of ourselves. Right. And uh, I think that's what will, will bring us together. I, I think it's an important element in, in all of the, the, the dialogue that I've been working on and so forth is that, is that compassion and what, 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 what inspires us is through the love and wants us to be kind. It just, it's not just a, a need to be kind so that we're going to go get through the pearly gates. It really right. is a, a compassion, a loving compassion without even thinking about breakfast. I like that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I, I, I wonder. Know. Amen. Um, oh. Yeah. Amen. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gary, our, our Buddhist, love it. Tell us, tell us, you know, what, what in in your fantasy of fantasies, have you thought about how, gee, how could I go to Israel and 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 just fix the Middle East? Have you ever thought of that? Me, Gary. Yeah. Um, well, sure, because being Jewish, one it has a, a tendency towards messianic behavior. Okay. Um, you know, um, I think it works the way Frank is doing it, which is person by person. Because mm-hmm. each person you touch, you touch all the people they touch. Mm-hmm. And you do it by your very being. I think not only hearing what Frank is saying, I feel the testimony. Uh, I can bear witness practically to, you know, that he embodies peace and that that peace is possible amongst these three major creeds, which, you know, because they're so... Similar is maybe why they're quarreling. Uh, do I have fantasy? Well, you know, I'm sure I will make Aliyah and return to <clears throat> Israel, as it's called. And, um, you know, I'm aware that there's a, a, a large Buddhist practice there, but also I'm a practice, you know, a Jew, so it would be a wonderful experience. I, um, you know. No, but the question is, did you have a fantasy, you know, have, do you have, you know, if we did such and such and such and such, there would be peace in the Middle East. Did you ever have that, you know, you just knew exactly what to do? No. I mean, it's, okay. you know, I mean, I, I, when people ask me, is there anything else I can do for you? I say, yeah, I'd like 365 days of peace, you know, all around the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, seriously, for example, for example, for example, in Buddhism, when one <clears throat> considers the compassionate vow, it's phrased for all beings that one vows, you know, one's life and one's practice for the sake of all beings. And if you stop and think about it, wait a minute, all beings? I'm responsible for all beings in the universe? Well, it works when you realize it at the level of the selflessness, which is the nature of what is. And at that level, yeah, if I, if I, I, I don't make a discrimination between whether I'm talking to my neighbor or uh, the president of a country, or whomever. I mean, obviously, a person who is a born a human being and is a president of a country holds great power. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they, too, are, you know, limited. It's I think it's, it's kind of like if you had a glass of water and you were to drop oil into it, drop by drop, at some point there's one drop of oil where it changes from uh, drops of oil suspended in water to where you have globs of water suspended in oil but one doesn't do it with a attachment to outcome one mm-hmm. just gives each drop one's fullest attention without a sense of you know giver giving and gift right. i can't attach a self to i hope yeah. i'm matching you you know you're asking me impossible you know you're unstoppable and you're asking me my unstoppability and that, that's where my unstoppability is but, but you're, you know you're a practicing jew and a practicing buddhist at the same time i find that absolutely amazing i love it well, well i don't not? think they're you know? incompatible i don't think it is incompatible to the extent that in judaism um, in, in, at least what I know, Gary, and do, do um, correct me, but especially the Kabbalists that I've met, the mystical, I've, yeah, many yeah. Jews are mystical, whether they're Kabbalists or not, are very much involved in interfaith in Israel and in the West Bank. And I'm a member of Kabbalists going to Nepal to study Buddhism, and the Buddhists were saying, you're welcome. But you know, in your own religion, especially the Kabbalist part of your religion, uh, you have a, a, a great deal of knowledge about world unity working together in a selfless, mindful way, yeah. uh, which, which inspired her to return to Israel to learn more about the Kabbalah. And uh, I, I don't know if you could say that's a common denominator between Buddhism and, and Judaism. I don't think I'd go that far, but there's so, so, so much to work for in that regard, bringing people together. It is great in the way that it not only creates this dialogue, you know, that mm-hmm. we've, we, we, we've, it's taken us how many centuries to, to begin to have, 
but that we can further water our roots as human beings, that we share this common heritage. And it can also broaden our wings, that we can extend But don't forget, further. every Passover, Jews remember themselves as slaves. They remember being enslaved. They well, remember they were, what freedom to me, like. to me, it's the actualization of liberation in the present moment. And to me, that is no different than the teachings of the Buddha. The liberation from suffering and enslavement in the present moment. And that's one of the central things. You know, is that the, 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 one isn't repeating a historical act, but one is actualizing it in the present moment for now. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that it becomes a, 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 you know, a, a spiritual liberation uh, as practice, not as, uh, you know, uh, ideology or um, That's knowledge, right. you know, knowledge yeah. without uh, it's not an absolute truth it's something you find in your life in today, in this moment in every moment, throughout our lives you know? That's powerful yeah. It's powerful because um, I lived in a Sephardic Jewish community for three years here in Paris where I'm, oh, where I'm speaking from and um, it truly was. It's people will look from the outside saying, "Well, gee, you're living in the community, and it was an Orthodox community, and you're you're uh, practicing all. You're you're going through Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah, and Passover, and Seder, and so forth together. Uh, but they saw it from the outside, but from the inside, it was a today thing. It was a today thing where we live and we grow together. It wasn't at all an esoteric. We're against them. It was. Just not forgetting the past, what we've lived through, and moving forward today, as 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 as, as and being free today, and working as a global thing. Passover is a global thing. It doesn't. It's not just about Jews. It really does reach out to people of all communities, okay. and that that I learned even from an Orthodox Jewish community. Very powerful. What do you think, Frank? About I mean, mm-hmm. you're still in Paris. And yes. the Paris government, you know, telling the, the uh, Muslim women that they can't wear the burqas, um, is that prejudice? Are they being prejudiced against? Well, it's, they're, they're actually, first of all, saying that, the, uh, that there cannot be any manifestation of religion up until the end of high school by any religion. But, of course, it's the woman wearing the hijab. It's the, it's the headscarf. And, of course, the burqa or any of that sort of thing, but in particular the headscarf. Um, and, and, and theoretically, you're not supposed to have a big cross or a big star of David or wear the uh, yarmulke also in, in, in schools up until the end of high school because that manifests, that goes against what they call as a secular state. Right. But in reality, it's not about discrimination. It, theoret- it, it's, the French are so convinced, they're so obstinately convinced that they are helping especially the young Muslim women, to separate from the pressures from their family to wear the headscarf, where in reality it's the intervention of the state that exacerbates the tension and even makes a lot more young girls that would have never no desire whatsoever or no pressure to wear the headscarf, the hijab, that are wearing it now to protest against the government. So it has all these perverse results. But the French people, I think it's all in good faith. They really think they're helping. And, but in reality, they're, they're not. They're, they're exacerbating the tension. Um, you know, but it's it's not so. It's a it's an illusion that they're really freeing Muslim women from the the grasp of the pressure from their families to conform to some Islamic traditions. Um, no, it's not about discrimination, Frank. It really is that the French people, in good faith, think that they're helping, but they're but the reality is they're not. Frank, my, my, the way you, I see it, they're not I helping. I love how you express both sides. Well I, tr- well, I try to keep it on both sides, and not not simply because I feel I should, Gary. It's just that um, there are both. I, I try to just focus on both sides. There are my both two, two sides. My two, cents, yeah. my two cents. France, you know, is the country that has inherited its its ideology from the French Revolution, where mm-hmm. the church, I mean, the state determines the church. Yes. The state has always been in France since the revolution. The state is. On top of the church, whereas in other countries the church is always, you know, uh, sacrosanct, apart from yes. the state. It's, that's part of the tradition of the French Revolution. Truly, for better or worse. So. For better or worse, exactly, Gary, because they 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 take it to the nth degree yeah. sometimes. But yeah. um, and I understand they say, well, this is a secular state, yeah. and so so is the United States. It's a secular state. 
Um, and in, in some, in the, the, the state of Israel, is, you know, in many ways, I mean, they say, well, state of Israel, it's, it's Judaism. Well, of course, when you have holidays and um, the Passover, it's closing and so forth, and Shabbat and so forth. But it truly, the state of Israel has great grains to become a very global community. Mm-hmm. As you say, there's Buddhists there, people of all walks of life that are free. I have to stop you. I'm sorry. Yes. I have to stop. we got 30 yes. seconds. Frank, yes. give us your website. <laughs> okay, sure. It's www.frankromano, R-O-M as in Mary, A-N as in Nancy, O, 363.com. And that's about the book, Storm Over Morocco. But with, with respect to the interfaith uh, uh, activities, it's www.frankromano363.blogspot.com. And I think that was the, the blog that you were looking at, Gary and Frankie, uh, and which I'll be adding to very soon after my June 5th visit to Janine in the West Bank and to Israel. Fantastic. Gary, tell us where, where folks can find your book. Oh, I'm uh, at Word, W-O-R-D dot T-O, and that's it. It's uh, T-O is Tonga, word dot two. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Listen, Gary Gock and Frank Romano, thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. And, and again, The uh, Storm Over Morocco is a fantastic, fantastic book. I highly recommend you guys go and read that. And I, I'm going to check out your book, Gary, and, and learn The Dummy's Guide to Buddhism. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank Where we are in the world, thank you. Have a great week, thank and I'll see you next week on Mission Unstoppable. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Shalom, shalom. Bye bye. Bye bye. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Bye bye.